Hello, and welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock with me, your host, Tony Michaelis. Moments That Rock is part of the Pantheon group of podcasts, and each week we delve into the uh, stories told by industry insiders and artists. Today's guest is a lady called Ellen Goldfarb. I met Ellen when there was a premiere of a magnificent film she'd produced and directed called Dare to be Different. And that was here in St. Petersburg, Florida. The original was at uh, Tribeca. You're here to talk about that. And all about her favourite radio station she grew up listening to in Long Island, which was called WLIR. And in weeks to come, we will have one of the gentlemen that uh, was the main figure there, uh, a gentleman by the name of Dennis McNamara. But first of all, Ellen Goldfarb. And as usual, we'll allow her to introduce herself. Hi, Tony. It's good to see you again. I am Ellen Goldfarb, and I am the director and creator and one of the producers of the documentary film New Wave Dare to Be Different. And the moment that rocked my world was when I started making this film. And we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2017, and we've had an amazing journey ever since. I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in the 70s and the early 80s of listening to WLIR in the beginning stages of it. It's been around for years, since the 50s, but when I started listening to it, I I was born in 65, so um, it was a rock station. It was like a progressive rock station. They would play the Grateful Dead and Joni Mitchell. They would start to play a little bit more of the like alternative kind of stuff of the 70s that wasn't really hitting mainstream radio. And eventually in like the late 70s, I remember they started to mix in some different kinds of music other than what we consider classic rock now or that Grateful Dead, Joni Mitchell kind of stuff. They, they had a short period where they really championed um, like all the uh, Southern rock bands like Leonard Skinner, Marshall Tucker, that the Long Island had a scene uh, around the late seventies where they were really championing those bands. And there were a lot of, I remember bands playing that kind of music, but in the late seventies, they started to incorporate more like CBGB kind of bands, bands that were coming out of New York in the late seventies, like Blondie, um, the Talking Heads, um, Television, the Ramones were huge in the seventies. They, I saw the Ramones um, at my father's place in the late nineteen seventies. Uh, so I was a kid; I was like sixteen years old, and I remember going to see them. Um, David Bowie, they were playing more of that kind of stuff. Uh, More like getting into what was going to be more of like the punk scene. And then all of a sudden, I remember like in the early 80s, they started playing more and more of this stuff. And then in 1982, all of a sudden, the radio station switched and they were, they dropped all the classic rock and they were only playing this kind of music, but it was nonsense. It was 24 seven and all these like songs were coming out and bands that nobody ever heard of. And I was like, wow, this station's really cool. And it felt like when you were listening to it, you were part of like the secret club. It was kind of like 
not a college station, but it was a station where you couldn't get the signal certain parts of New York. Like if I would drive certain parts of like Westchester or Rockland County, you couldn't get the signal. Or I remember driving into Manhattan and I would lose the signal. And then in certain parts of Manhattan, you'd get the signal. But I remember when I was able to, you know, the drinking age was 18. By the time I turned 18, I was able to go to all the clubs. So I would go to like Spit and the Malibu. And uh, there were so many of them. My father's place, there was um, Rum Runner. And and so all this music was being played at these clubs. And I was like, oh, my God, they're playing the music I listened to on LIR. And then you would meet all these like-minded people that listened to that station, you know. So it became like a secret club. And... Um, anyone that listened to LAR, it was kind of cool, you know, and I had some friends that were like, I never heard of Blamage or I never heard of The Cure or any of these cool bands. And I was like, yeah, like, I know all this cool music. I'm cool, you know, <laughs> that's because I listen to LAR. Anyway, so it became, it, it, they just kept bringing out all these new songs. And I, I remember just listening, you, you didn't want to stop listening to the station because you'd miss something. And they had the Screamer of the Week where they would introduce new songs of the week. And voters would, I remember we would call in and vote for our favorite song of the week. And those became hits. Like, and no other station was doing that. Like, the DJs became like your friends. And you would call them up and you'd speak to Larry the Duck or Malibu Sue. And you'd request a song and they were just so cool. And you were like, where are they going to be tonight? Oh, they're going to be at... Paris, New York. I'm going to go to Paris, New York because Larry's spinning. Or and and so the DJs became club DJs as well as being radio DJs, and you'd follow them. And it was so much fun. It was just a really fun time to be growing up and being involved in music. So when I went to I left for college in 1983, and you know I remember like I would come back on breaks. And I'd have my little tape recorder and I would tape LIR, even the commercials, because the commercials were awesome. <laughs> and I would just let, I would buy like 120 minute tapes and then I'd bring the tapes back to college so I can, I didn't want to miss anything. Didn't want to miss a beat of what was happening on, on LIR. And then when I came back in 87, 88, it wasn't LIR anymore. It was a new station, DRE, and it wasn't the same. They were, they were still playing that music, but at that time, you know, then the grunge era was starting, and it, some of the DJs had left, and I didn't know what happened to, to LIR. It was so confusing. Like it was LIR, then it was DRE, then eventually it went back to LIR, the call letters, and I was like, what? What? This is so bizarre. Like. Nobody ever talked about, like, what actually happened with this station. You listen to Ellen Goldfarb talking about... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons... Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. The story of WLIR. And we'll be back after this. And then, you know, now it's years later, and on Facebook, I noticed there were these tribute pages to LIR, and people were posting on Facebook, like, do you remember this song? And, you know, now we can post, like, YouTube videos, and people were talking about LIR and about the songs, and I was like, oh, my God, I remember that song and that song, because they, they don't play that music anymore on regular radio. It's like, you know, this is 80s. But... You know, some of these songs I never heard outside of LAR. Like the, some of these songs were like considered like your one hit wonder songs. And so, you know, eventually some of these bands did get famous, like U2 and, you know, some of these other bands. I mean, they launched from LAR, from getting that exposure back then. They were nothing. They were all even keel on the same level. And then some of them just got really big and some had one hit wonders. I love the one hit wonders. I feel like those are the most nostalgic, the most fun, or like the really early U2 songs that never got played. So I was on Facebook and just like, wow, like whatever happened to that radio station here? It's 30 years later. It's no longer on the air, but there's all these people that still love LAR and there's like all these followers. So started to do some research on whatever happened to LAR. And I realized, wow, like there's a really interesting story here. And has everyone, anyone ever made a movie or documented about it? So I was talking to my brother, he's a film writer, screenplay writer, uh, did Broadway shows, whatnot. And he's in, the, he's in the business. And I said, you know, what do you think? You think we should work on a project about this radio station? And 
He's like, yeah, it's a great story. He's like, I'm super busy right now, but why don't you do it? I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> so I started to do research and realized that, you know, I had to read. I remembered Dennis McNamara. He was the program director. And I remembered that. And I always loved listening to him. He just had such this calming voice. And he was always like a great interviewer. I remember he used to have amazing interviews with all the artists. And I he was like one of my favorites. So I'm like, I got to I got to reach him. Because I know he was the program director and I know I needed to get him on board. So he was the first one that I tried to find. There was a website dedicated to WLIR and a guy named Bob Wilson was the person who created the website. And so I said, I wonder if this guy knows how to reach Dennis. So I reached out to Bob and I said, you know, I'm interested in making a documentary about WLIR and uh, I need to reach Dennis McNamara. We spoke on the phone and he was able to connect me with, with Dennis. And from there, it was just like the magic just happened. It was at first Dennis and I thought, well, maybe we should make this into a theatrical film. And it's a story about a young girl who would have like been me, had a dream of being a DJ. And this was her favorite radio station. So we had all these characters and whatnot. But then we pitched it to my brother's um, talent uh, agency and whatnot. They were like, you know, this sounds more like, I think your sister should steer more in the documentary route. I was like, great. You know, that was great feedback. So um, we started to then reach out to all the DJs and then club owners. And then from there, music executives. And then from there, the artists, managers, whatnot. And the whole process took seven years from start to finish. When you came upon the original idea, were you thinking Cameron Crowe, almost famous type movie? Kind of, yeah. But then again, you just, you just been following. To, so to do it the way you did it was probably the right move. Yeah, thinking back for sure. I mean, it would have been a fun story. And I mean, we had all these ideas, like Broadway show. <laughs> but no, I think, you know, really documenting the story of what was the story of LAR? What was the rise and fall of this radio station? Because every successful film has, you know, act one, act two, act three. And what's, what? who are the protagonists? Who are the antagonists? It's like any story. And you can't have a successful documentary film, even a documentary, without having those components, without without having a story. So, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries before I made this one. And I'm, I, some of them, I was like, I don't get it. What's the story? You know, what what happened? What was the start? What was the middle? And what was the what was the end? What was the what what were the messages that I was supposed to get out of this. And, you know, you can have a story about any radio station, but they didn't have a story. It was like, okay, great. So there were DJs and they played certain music. Great, but what's the story? And this documentary had a great story. It was almost like a David and Goliath kind of a thing that, you know, here's a radio station that was battling all the big stations of New York City with the um, vicinity in which they were able to reach people and LARs was smaller, you know, and, but they 
did something that no other station did. You know, there were other stations back in the late 70s that were playing uh, similar music to LAR. There was a station here in LA, uh, KROQ, and they had, you know, Rodney Bingenheimer and some other great DJs that were also pretty world famous, similar to Dennis, but they they never did what LAR did back in 1982. You know, each, each of these stations, there was a station, I think, in Boston, there was one in San Diego, and eventually, you know, they were all trying to do what LAR was doing. But LAR in 1982 was the only station in the country that went 24 hours, seven days a week with playing this music. And that gave them the ability to be on the forefront of breaking all these artists because they dedicated their format to only new music, new wave music, punk, whatever you want to call it. All this music that was coming out of New York, that was coming out of England, that was coming out of Germany, and they played all of these. They didn't care if you were a bigger band or a one-hit wonder. They played it. They would have weekly DJ meetings, and they would play all this music and decide, okay, what are going to be the nominees for the Screamer of the Week? And they would put those up, and they would let the audience vote, which no other station did either. You know, and, cause, because I live in Los Angeles and I've, I I interviewed a, a couple of the DJs that were on KROQ and they said, no, they were still playing classic rock, mixing this music in, but they weren't getting all of the music in that they wanted to like LIR was. So they would they would work with the LIR DJs and some of the music would cross over from L.A. to New York, like some of the DJs would communicate with each other. There was an internet back then, but they had, they, they had phone and however, however else they would communicate. LAR was playing it nonstop and agents and managers from Europe were like, oh my God, there's a station in New York that's playing all this music. We got to get our bands over there. So they would send demos over to Dennis on airplanes through JFK airport and the DJs would run, literally go to the airport and pick up these uh, records and bring them back to the station. That's, <laughs> I mean, it was real raw, old school ways of doing things. Um, we worked with a company called Dutch East Indie Company, and they were also getting imports and bringing them to the station. We had, um, or they had, um, artists, dropping imports off at their doorstep. LIR is just so well respected in the industry because of what they did. So a lot of those um, music executives were interviewed and are in our film. It was important to get them in because it was a great, you know, way to see their side of the story. All the artists I interviewed really wanted to pay homage to the station because again, that was their gateway to America, or that was their asset of getting their music played as well. Music managers, uh, DJs at the time, all, everyone was following this little radio station. We wanted to document when they crossed over and played it 24-7. I was a super fan and the director and the producer, so it was a labor of love. I wanted people to really have a feeling to feel something 
powerful when they watched this movie, not only to enjoy it and bring them back in time, but I wanted them to walk out of the theater with emotion. And I really feel like we conquered that. It was a love letter to LAR for changing some people's lives. You know, as human beings, we want to be part of a tribe. You know, it's our tribal being. We, we all want to belong. We want to belong to something that makes us feel special, empowered. Um, and that's what this station did for people. Excellent. The passion in making a film about something you're totally into, first and foremost, as a fan. That was Ellen Goldfarb, and Ellen will be back in weeks to come, continuing to tell us about Dare to be Different, which you'll be able to see on a screen near you. Uh, Just go check out where it's available, because it is going for another screening somewhere else. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelides. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week. Subscribe, leave some comments, and we'll see you then. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.